here we go greetings to the next episode of purple space uh, cascade of thoughts today we have with us namisha and uh, she's a really inspiring individual she has started a bunch of charities multiple clubs and i actually like to give you a few names of them she's the founder of eco living she is an advocate for nature and technology and she is an innovator in multiple aspects in society she's come up with innovative solutions to global problems so it's a really great uh, thing to have you here namisha welcome to the show thank you so much it's a pleasure to spend time with both of you and uh, really be part of something amazing that you guys are doing so thank you for having me thank you so much uh, why don't we start with uh, a series of questions um when did you find your calling in educate sorry in technology climate change and that particular sector when did you know that is what i'm going to choose and stick to for the rest of my life yeah i mean that's a great question to start with so um i, I wish it was something some amazing experience i had which changed my psychology but it was nothing like that um i finished uh, actually between my second and final year of university i did a internship at an investment bank and after spending time there about sort of 3 to 4 months and when i went back to uni everyone i remember was very excited going oh my god you worked at a bank this must be so cool like i bet you can't wait to go back and to be very honest with both of you i whilst it was a great experience i realized that i really wanted to do stuff that had more purpose and meaning not that i'm saying banking doesn't have purpose and meaning but i wanted to really be a part of an industry or a part of a movement that meant that i could look back in 10 15 20 years time and kind of pat myself on the shoulder and go yeah you did some great work so uh in my final year of uni i spent a lot more time understanding uh what the role is of technology when it comes to building our future and i must admit i i'm not an engineer i was not great at maths it was probably one of my weakest subjects so what i really started to do was explore what is the role of business especially when we talk about creating new things and what is the role of technology in building a better society for ourselves and through that process i then found um my then calling which was to start working in the consulting industry so to really start to work within other larger businesses as a as a consultant to understand how do they work and then to really understand what is the role of technology in building better business and so when i started my first graduate job which was with a company called accenture which i'm sure you guys may be familiar with um i was funny enough offered the opportunity by a bunch of directors to go back and work as a consultant with banks and i remember this day very well because i was called into an interview and you know the clients loved me the client director loved me and i remember walking away getting a phone call saying yes you've got the role you know get ready to start on monday and i said actually i'm going to turn this role down and i remember a few of my um peers at the time were like oh my god you're crazy what are you doing like you want to do that kind of job and it was really at that time that i had been speaking to another uh like another manager in our energy practice and at that time we were kind of britain was going through this phase of rollout of um 
you know, advanced technology to help us be a more greener or renewable society. And that was something that really interested me. So, you know, rather than working in the glamorous Canary Wharf in the middle of London, I chose to go into the middle of nowhere into a little village in Britain that I had never heard of and be part of effectively what is now the, you know, green renewable energy movement in the UK. So um, I think, yeah, that's really where my journey started. It was just a decision to really look at that intersection of how technology plays a role in helping us build a better society. And then from that point onwards, it was just learning, doing, learning, doing. And then over the last five years, really, as you introduced me, applying all those things that I learned into new businesses, whether that's within you know, NGOs or charities, or even you know, working at the complete forefront of advancing tech to solve some of our very large societal problems. Wow, that is a really inspiring um, start. So I think it was just a matter of trial and error until you found your answer. I think, I think that's yeah. something you can tell us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think like, you know, as as young people, you, um, I mean, I, I like to think I'm a little bit young still, but I think we're, we're always forced to go down a certain track from a very young age. And, you know, it's kind of like, you have to be a doctor, you have to be an engineer. And then it's kind of, it's kind of forced onto you to follow that trajectory. And I think the best inspiration I can give all of you guys is, you know, forge your own path. You know, most of the times that may not be so easy, but I think, you know, the world we live in now where you can have information at your fingertips, you can have access to people like me and, you know, we, we're creating all these kind of initiatives, whether it's clubs or co-working spaces where you can kind of go and learn a bit more about a different pathway. That's really positive. And I, I think that's the best encouragement I can give all of you that forge your own path. If you have a passion about something that really means something to you believe you me that will carry you forward far more than what you think you've learned in a classroom because it's that passion which will keep driving you forward to learn more do more and really kind of create your own footprint out in the world so i think you know that's the best advice i can give you guys i i really loved uh things that you've said it was really inspiring especially the thing that you said about uh, doing something that resonates with you rather than uh, taking a path that is, you know, that the society thinks that you should do. So, you know, we usually talk about the success that one person has and how that has uh, shaped that person. But I, I generally feel like, oh, this is we go through that really give us the learning experiences. What were such challenges that you faced in your life that has really shaped you? So what are the, the drawbacks that taught you better? Oh, so many. Um, and that's a great question, by the way. So I think one of the first ones I remember was, you know, the, the project I told you that I joined on, which was in that little village in the middle of nowhere. And um, I met my manager uh, so on, my, on my first day. And I was really excited because I was like, oh, I'm doing something so cool and he's going to be so interesting. And he was the dullest person I ever met. And I remember when I started my first day, I was kind of hoping he would give me sources of inspiration and stuff like that. And so I was like sitting next to him really eagerly. And I was like, so, you know, what's your best advice for me? And he was like, listen, when the client asks you to do something, you don't ask why. You just say, how much do you want me to do? And I was like, oh okay and i realized that that was my one of my first lessons i learned that 
not every person on your pathway is going to be a, a full source of inspiration or information. So, you know, finding your own sources of inspiration or things that are going to keep propelling you forward is actually more important. And that's not to say that there aren't people out there who support you or will really take you under their wing and help you. But I think you have to be your own biggest advocate. Like if the biggest mistake we could all make is that we have to rely on somebody else to make things happen for us. So that was one of the first lessons I learned. And I think that one has always stuck with me because even now when people ask me like, oh my God, how have you done all the things you've done? I always say it's because I'm my own advocate. I decide where what is the pathway that I want to take. And then I go and learn and find all the bits of information I need to make that pathway happen. So that was one of the first things I learned. The second thing that was quite challenging is also being a woman working in tech, right? So that's not a very... I mean, obviously times have changed from 10 years ago when I started, but I remember when I started, I was one of maybe 20 women in a group of 150 people. So there was a lot of um, challenging the status quo on what is really the role of women when it comes to technology and, you know, us as in what can we bring to the table? There was always this perception that like, oh, you're a woman, are you going to understand this? And I'm like, I have a brain. I'm also a human. Like, you know, it's, it's not really that different. So there was a lot of challenging those sorts of norms. And, and that can be quite tough. And I think it's really positive that, you know, now there's much more of a movement around getting young women into STEM roles, like whether that's science, tech, engineering, or manufacturing. But at that time, if you didn't have an engineering degree, if you weren't a mathematician, it was like really weird. They'd be like, what are you doing here? Or why are you here? And that experience taught me a lot more about how, again, you know, society's kind of shaped even those sorts of jobs to be fairly linear and one-sided. So you have to be a mathematician to work in technology or you have to be an engineer. And I think the one thing I learned was, um, and it's one of my favorite lessons I teach a lot of, you know, my mentor, mentees, which is um, every piece of technology that exists out there wouldn't even sit in your hands if it wasn't for people who understood the human psychology of how tech works. So there's, there's one part which is actually building the technology, but the other part is when I come and put it in somebody's hands and I tell them how to use it, there's a human, there's a humanness I have to bring into that technology to make people understand, oh, this is how this app helps me, or this is how this phone helps me. And that's not something an engineer will be able to do, or, you know, someone who's a core mathematician, because they're completely in the product all the time. And that's when I started to kind of forge this pathway of, yeah, there's an intersection between the utility of technology versus that humanness that you have to create so that people actually engage with it. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be an engineer. You could be a psychologist, you could be a creative, you could be an artist. So those kind of pathways help you create those interactions where then people can look at an iPad or they can look at a robot and go, hey, cool, actually I can make it do this or this or that. So yeah, I think those were two very pivotal experiences that have continued to shape pretty much most of the things I do. Like, um, I'll give you guys an example. I'm very fortunate to work with a client right now where we are turning, you know, um, environmental strategy into a game, which we can then take into boardrooms and basically create a virtual environment where board of directors can keep 
messing things up so they don't do it outside in the real world. But in order to do that, it takes an artist to create that kind of interaction or it takes a psychologist to make the person think, well, actually, how do I do this differently? And that's not something a coder or engineer, engineer will immediately get. So, you know, those pathways are definitely changing. And I think another thing I've also learned is, you know, as tech grows and, you know, AI and VR and all these things become so prevalent in our society, what most people tend to forget is that the need for these sorts of jobs will slowly go away because machines will start to do it more and more. And so actually being creative, being an artist, being a musician actually now becomes more important because it's like if the machines are doing all these jobs, then it's time for you guys to get creative and like be more artistic, make more music, you know, whatever it is, because now those pathways are open for you. So yeah, I think those were two quite pivotal experiences that changed definitely my perception, but it also helped me mentor those who followed me in a better way to not give up hope. Wow. Um, those are really inspiring events, actually. Um, so when you consider these uh, creative type people or social activists or climate change activists, um, I think what, what it boils down to is how they leverage these new tools like AI, VR, and social media for that matter, and yeah. use it to the maximum, use it to the best way possible so that they actually get what they're trying to do. So I think in your example, starting out these NGOs and putting what you learned into practice is what we as the viewers need to take away from this video. Yeah. Uh, learn something, put it into action so that you see some positive results. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, you know, think outside the box, like, like I said, right? So if you're sitting in a room with an engineer and a technologist, learn from them, but then take what you've learned from them and then think about how can I make this information accessible to the average human, which is what a lot of these activists do, right? Like mm -hmm. they'll use these platforms or these pieces of tech to make the average person understand why is climate change important or why is it important for us to save our oceans and, and all those sorts of things. So yeah, that's the best way I could describe it in sort of layman's terms. Now, when it comes to things I like, really loved, uh, yeah. Um, after I do this, you can go ahead, Aisha. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. When it comes to things like poverty or uh, social problems, um, how can you get technology into this? How can you uh, utilize technology to solve such problems? Because you need to connect with multiple people and effectively change mindsets. So how does technology and uh, climate change come into this? Um, so that's a very good question. So let's, let's just take, for example, poverty, right? So as an example, um, or as a problem statement, let's start with that. So first and foremost, the way I like to do is break down where technology exists in those uh, social interactions in the first place. So like, um, in the most poorest of poor settings, um, what we're starting to see is that it doesn't matter how, how challenged those environments are, most people, most people, not everyone, still has access to like a basic phone. Maybe not a smartphone, but at least a phone, right? Or somebody within their social construct will have access to that. So how can we leverage that? How can we use the assets or things that already exist in their ecosystem 
to start creating very simple but meaningful interactions. So like some of the work we do with some child activists out in Kenya is around leveraging what basically is a very simple phone, but then using that communication method to teach them very simple things like how to harvest rainwater or how to just grow basic foods to feed themselves. During the COVID pandemic, it was about just supplying them with with the right information to help them protect themselves. So though, so understanding where tech exists in these places is the first thing. The second one is also, you know, we now live in a world where we have so much access to information. So maybe not those people who live in those environments, but we as the people who want to make that change, we know that there's so much more access to data and information. So what can we learn from that? You know, what can we learn from what has been done before that hasn't worked? And so how can we make that better? So that's the second one. And then the last one is, how can you scale up the availability of not just tech, but also information to create simplified interactions for those people to shift their life around? So sometimes I think when we're social activists, or at least when we're scientific social activists, we overcomplicate problems. So we'll kind of sit there and do studies for years and then write papers. And it's like, that's great. But, but right now the world doesn't need us to do endless studies. What it does need us to do is learn from those studies and create actions that not only we as social activists take, but also that those people who are in those circumstances can utilize to turn their situations around. So those are kind of my three intersectional points. That's where I will start to look at solutions to problems. And even with, you know, all of the different companies or clients or NGOs that I've worked with, this is predominantly how most of them start with. They always start by looking to solve a single problem or a simpler problem and then learning from that and also interacting with those people who are impacted by those problems to learn what is important to them. Because this is like a classic mistake that a lot of NGOs would make. They'd kind of sit in their offices and go, we understand the water crisis in this part of the world. And it's like, but have you really gone and spent some time there and actually spoken to those people to understand why does this water crisis exist? Like, maybe you think it's that there's not enough rain, but actually there's plenty of rain and there's just not enough uh, capacity to store that water to make it useful for them. So I also think it's important to also use technology to have interactions with those people. Like we're very fortunate with the work we do with these child activists in Kenya, that they do have access to a phone and they can get on a Zoom call. And then, sorry, one second guys. Sure. Sorry about that. Do you want me to take that question again? No, you can just continue from where you left off. Yeah. So, what, so what I was saying was, you know, you want to use those moments to, to help them understand how they can improve their situation. Whether it's, you know, previously it would be, let's go out there and spend time with them, but now we don't need to do that. We can get on a Zoom call like this and talk to them, educate, with, educate them and advocate for them. And that's another, that's something I love about this technological age right now is the ability to create so much awareness in the world about what is going on because we all are on social media. We're all on like, you know, reading information, reading the news, and um, and then also how social media also allows us to create um, 
interactions which improve that level of education. So like you'll see people doing TikTok videos about how to protect yourself over COVID pandemic or stuff like that. So there's so many ways that we can start to utilize technology to solve social problems, but it always starts with understanding those three things. You know, number one, what, what technological infrastructure actually exists within that sort of ecosystem to support them. Two, what data is available at our hands to understand that problem better. And number three, how can we communicate with them or spend more time with them to understand situationally what is it that they need as opposed to kind of just sitting in a lab or in a room and trying to solve a problem without physically being there. I really loved so many things that you spoke about because uh, I literally feel like I'm talking to you in person and you're solving my problems. It's that uh, relatable. And I, I really like the thing that you said about source of inspiration. That we usually have this concept of uh, picking some one person and following what they do or loving all everything that they do. That is not possible. You find sure. inspiration in different things. So what actually inspired you to start uh, Eco-Conscious Brand uh, Mahia? And why is it important for everybody to be uh, uh, conscious about the environment? What is the need of the art? Right. So, yeah, I mean, the inspiration behind Mahira was to, it was really because I, I, I learned how broken consumerism is, you know, how, how we're, and these are all sorts of ways that technology has ruined us. And then there's, so it's like, okay, tech has ruined us by kind of feeding us this perception of this consumer society where we must have, 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 have all the time because, you know, this person has it or this influencer has it. So now I have to have it. So it was like, well, how can we change that narrative by using the same platforms, but to tell a different story? So Mahira was really inspired by the idea of how can we, how can we make fashion a force for good? Or how can we make the ability to consume a product much more traceable so that a person understands actually these are how many hands my product has gone through and not just that i think i mean like one of the things i was always inspired by was my grandma like and and how like when she moved from gujarat to east africa when she married my granddad she came with like a whole trunk of like saris and all these like heritage things that she brought with her which she had with her until she passed away and she would still wear them again and again. And they became like these heirloom things that she passed down from her daughters onto her sons and then onto me and us as grandkids. And that's when I said, why don't we do that anymore? Like we, we, we don't produce things for heritage or heirloom purposes. We're always producing things to be like, oh, it's for a season or for a reason. It's not really for like those meaningful things that are, you know, two generations ago our ancestors used to do so it was also about reinventing the narrative of when we buy why are we really buying this so we wanted to break this uh, ideology of that it's not quantity it's quality so yes you may have to spend a little bit more money but by spending that money you've got something that you can pass on to your grandkids you've you've created meaning in somebody else's life you've allowed a craftsman to actually stay true to their craft and not have to give that up because you know market forces are forcing them to you know stop doing those things so it was kind of being 
a more social purpose brand. So, it, you know, it was never about like, let's be the next pioneer in sustainable fashion, even though that's kind of how we're looked at. It was more about giving fashion a social purpose to say that when I buy, I'm actually doing a bunch of good things for all of these people who touch this product along the way. So that was the inspiration behind Mahira. And you're going to have to remind me what your second question was. Uh, why is it important that we all should be eco-conscious? Well, you know, I love that question. And my answer is always because if we're not eco-conscious, we're all going to lose a home. Like this planet, this home that we live on, it's going to disappear. Yeah. At least, and, mm -hmm. and something I always say to people is, actually, it's not even the planet that's going to disappear. We are going to disappear. Because, you know, the planets had dinosaurs and then made them extinct. And then we've had other civilizations come along, come and go, come and go. The planet will still be there. But the way that we know it and how we love it and all the things that it allows us to do will slowly start to disappear. So one of the one of the ways I love to open some of my talks around sustainability and climate change is to actually remind people that what do you love about your life at the moment? And most people will say, oh, I love my job. I love my kids. I love my house. I love my Tesla. I love my this, that, the other. And I'm like, it's great. Okay, you love all those things. Now imagine if you were told tomorrow that because you don't live eco-consciously, you can't enjoy all those things you love. And that always is like a huge interrupt in people's minds where they're like, oh, I never thought of it like that. Like I never thought if I'm not eco-conscious or I don't change my habits, then all these things I love, I'm not going to be able to enjoy anymore because guess what? The planet as we know it and that the way in which it allows us to do these things is no longer going to exist. So I think, you know, being eco-conscious is really a survival thing. It's like, we, if we don't change our ways, we're not going to survive as a species. We're not going to have this wonderful planet that David Attenborough always kind of teaches us about. And, you know, we're not going to have the wonderful rain or all these things that we've all come to appreciate and love. So it is a call to action for our own survival. That's why we need to be eco-conscious. Wow. Um, well, when it comes to being eco-conscious, uh, I think the only people who are going to be against that is the oil industry because they profit off of destroying the earth's resources. Not to attack anyone, uh, I'm just speaking objectively. Uh, yeah. Now, how, how would you approach such industries? Because you, they have been existing for quite some time now and they need to think of their best interests as well. So as an eco-warrior, as someone who's working with technology and climate change, how would you approach um, such uh, industry heads and convince them to change their mind or walk in a different path? Uh, that's my question. Well, it's funny you say that because I've actually done that in my role. So, um, and, and I'll tell you, without giving away the name of the company, because I can't, but I will tell you what we did and how we did it. But before I jump into that, you know, I think what we all have to remember is that all of these companies were built by people at a time when they believed that everything was infinite and that there was never going to be a cap or a limit. Um, and similarly, they also built all of these companies on the belief that we were never going to be a population of 7 billion people on the planet. So when you, and I think in order to understand how you shift the psychology of companies like these, you have to also understand 
who are the people who drive that and what kind of psychological framework have they been brought up in or raised in that make them make these decisions? Because I don't believe that anybody is inherently cruel. Well, I mean, some people are, but we'll not name names. But I think most people are a byproduct of a situational context that they're raised in. And that's also true for companies as well. But what you'll also see, and this is not true for all oil companies in the world, but a lot of them are shifting their ways because now they're recognizing that in order for us to survive as an organization, even if we're 100 years old, we actually have to change because eventually the oil is going to run out. Eventually those gas stores are going to deplete. So how do we pivot as companies and, and stay relevant and still be those pioneers in providing power to the masses, but how can we do it in a different way? So I remember it was about eight years ago um, and I was working on a client engagement which was sitting in the boardroom of one such type company without naming them. And the discussion at that time was, okay, how do we leverage the technology that we've built or developed to pivot to the future? And when we mean pivot, we're not completely saying that we're going to stop extracting oil and gas because it's still a primary part of our business. But the reason we're having this discussion is because we recognize that cannot be the primary part of our business for perpetuity. Something is going to have to change. And so they went down, we did this innovation pathway for them where we were looking at, okay, well, how do you pivot and still be a, a, a power generating company, but in a sustainable, ethical and moral way? And you'd be surprised, you know, now this one such company is one of the biggest renewable energy providers here in the UK. So they've completely shifted from production of oil and gas primarily to now using all of this wealth that they built over a hundred years to now look at, okay, we're going to invest that into renewable power generation, solar, uh, microgrids, equipping people with the ability to be renewable at home. So I always believe that it's the appetite within these companies to actually be pioneers and make that sustainable pivot. And, and that's down to showing them where is it a mutual benefit for them. So I think that was where at least it was a win for me sitting in that boardroom to show them that it's not just that if you stop generating oil or gas that you, you suddenly become irrelevant. It's about how you change with the times and stay relevant to your existing consumer who is also becoming conscious and ethical. Because you guys know this as well, everybody's shifting, right? Everybody's looking for ways of how can I be sustainable? How can I do the little things in my home? And companies like that have a really, really, I always say this, I'm like, you have such a fantastic opportunity to, to change the way the world works because not only do you have a consumer base, but you also have the assets and resources to do that. It's tougher if I come out as a challenger company and say, I'm gonna be the renewable provider of the year when I don't have you know, the money or the equity or you know, any of those things to make that happen. So you know, I love my role in being that kind of challenger in the room with those people to make them think, oh yeah, actually it's going to be more profitable for me as a company, for my shareholders and for all my stakeholders to make this change. Now, I was very fortunate that the people who are in that boardroom are very forward thinking. So they kind of adapted to that straight away. That's not to say that every single 
other oil and gas companies going to approach it in the same way? They may not. Some people were like, well, you know what? I used to make profit this way and I'm going to stick with that because some people don't like change. But what you'll see over a period of time is those that are resistant to change become irrelevant. We've seen this throughout history. So as much as and, you know, again, media has a role to play in this as well. Media will glamorize all of these things like, oh, this company has an oil spill and now they're bad. And it's like, yes, they're bad, but also we as a society are also heavily dependent on this type of asset and resource. So what are we doing as each individual citizen, government or company to change that dependency? And these are these are the things that the more we learn and the more we advocate for, the more we can assist each of those players to make those right changes. So, you know, yes, it is tough. And I think we live in a very interesting time in society where people are, especially these sorts of big players are looking at, okay, what is the right change for me to make? But that also means that they're open to that change because they realize if we don't do this, we will become irrelevant. It's like the best example I can give you is Donald Trump. Like, look what's happening to him. He's so resistant to change as a person that now in his second term where he should or he thought he would be doing so well with this next election, he's not. Because when he had societal interactions or things that happened, which were like interrupts for him to step in and go, OK, I'm going to do this differently, he didn't. And so I think that there's also times where these people are presented with opportunities and it's like, how smart are they to actually take that and use that opportunity to do something different? Wow. Um, I think the one key message for all companies watching this is adapt or go bankrupt. So change your yeah. thinking, uh, look towards the future, see what we can do and take Nimisha's words, words as advice. We have customer yeah. bases, we have assets with us and I think it's up to us to realize that see its potential and um, actually use it so that we can change our lives as well as the world around us. And I think with that, uh, it's been really great talking to you, Namisha. I think Aisha would agree with me as well. It's been really inspiring to hear what you've said to us, learn, your, learn how your life has proceeded, the journey with its ups and downs. And I think all viewers are going to enjoy this episode particularly because there are a lot of real world problems we're dealing with. So stay tuned for more videos, everyone. Thank you very much. And thank you, guys. I just want to quickly say, you know, it's so inspiring to see young people like yourselves take on these topics, bring people like us to the table, because I really believe it's when we all work together that we're actually going to make meaningful change. So it was such an honor, and I thank you both so much for having me. It was completely our pleasure and it's it's so great to have you. We just knew you by your name and your project but now we know what drives you and what motivates you. Thanks a lot for it.